Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn with us to Psalm 53. If you're our guest, let me sort of explain where we are. We have worked through uh, Psalms as divided up into books. Um, this was the songbook of God's people. We are working our way through the second book, um, which works from about chapters 42 over to 72. So we're, we find ourselves in in uh, Psalm 53, next week we'll be in Psalm 54, and we will keep going uh, until we finish out this particular section of Psalm. So I hope you got your Bible open and, and ready this morning, sort of trying to understand if you got your notes. If not, the notes are over there on the blue table. Um, the title of the sermon is, God Doesn't Care. And you're sitting there going, man, I hope, I hope that we're going to clarify that. And I, I think the Psalm will. So stand with us to your feet in honor of God's Word. This has a, a subtitle on it, To the Choir Master, according to the Mahalath uh, Maskell of David. A fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror. Where there is no terror... For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Let's pray. So God... We stand before you in the midst of our own situation. The truth is, many of us in this room have never been oppressed by anyone who overpowered us. And so, Lord, we strain sometimes to feel what David felt and what Israel felt, but not all of us. There are people around us that know exactly what it feels like to be oppressed. And, Lord, you speak to us in the midst of our suffering in the midst of an overpowering situation that we can't understand why it is happening, you speak clearly on how we must respond. And so, Lord, teach your people today. For if we do not need it now, we will need it later. Equip us, prepare us, comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So the genre, the way this is written is to be a lament. Every psalm has a particular genre, and they're not all the same. But for the next few weeks, we're going to see some lament psalms. This one in particular uses wisdom language to do two things, most uh, multiple things, but two things you're going to see today, to complain to God. Sitting there going, what? Are we, not, are we really supposed to do that? According to the lament psalms, it's part of our problem is that we complain to others, but we do not complain to God. You complain to God and you implore His deliverance. You ask Him. 
That's what a lament does. It's given to God's people. Because during David's reign, they may not have been facing enemies all around. They were victorious a lot in David's reign. But we know what happened in the future. So this is preparing them. Psalms 53 is important because it's repeated. If you, if you look back at Psalms 14, it's almost identical. So in book 1, we have this psalm. In book 2, we have this psalm repeated. Uh, one guy says it this way. The two hymns serve the same function, namely to enable the community of God's people to mourn the fact that humankind, especially those with power, do not seek after God and thus instead treat people with cruelty. The main idea, the fool lives their life as if God does not care. But God promises to both judge and to restore. The psalmist laments and when he does so, he does two things. He magnifies his God and he indicts humankind. So let's ask a question, bring it into our world and hopefully what we're all struggling with and we are whether we realize it or not. Is it possible to be a confessing believer and still live like a functional atheist? Or a practical atheist. In our everyday, in the way we make decisions. It is to say, I, I am gladly a Christian. Yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. And at the same time, we cheat on our taxes. We sleep with our boyfriends and girlfriends. We steal from our employers. We mistreat our employees. And we live our everyday as if the biblical community doesn't matter at all. That's a functional atheist. You believe in Jesus. Sometimes it sounds like this. You know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That means you're saying that the very people that Christ died to bring you in, you don't need them. It's a functional atheism. We can embrace this. We're like, uh, remember the circus? They had three arenas. Everything going on at the same time. And you're trying, you know, when you're a kid, you're trying to watch what's going on. It, it is if we're saying, well, in these two arenas, yeah, well, I, I want God's input. I need him here. But this one over here, maybe this is my work. This is my business. i got to climb the corporate ladder. God, I'm just going to have to let it slide over here. Maybe it's my hobbies and who I hang around with when I'm in doing my hobbies. The psalmist says this is a foolish assumption to act as if God doesn't care. That's what verse 1 is really getting at. It says the fool says in his heart there is no God. That what David's doing there is he's lamenting the enemies around him who feel like they can attack him with impunity. God's not going to do something about this. They're not necessarily saying there's no God. That's, if you could read the original language, you would see that. They're not saying there is no God. They're sitting there going, God is not active. God is not going to do anything about what I'm doing, so I can do what I'm going to do and just get by with it. It's okay. He's saying that's a foolish assumption. You see, we make foolish assumptions about God. And the first one is obvious is God doesn't care if I sin. He doesn't care. So we're not saying there is no God. We're just acting in our life as if there is no God. Flip back with me to Psalms 10. Psalms 10, a little bit more clear here. David repeats these themes all through the psalm. It, is, it was his experience for about 15 years of his life of being chased and oppressed by those in positions of power. Uh, Psalm 10, verse 4. 
In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgment's on high and out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved through all out of these generations. I shall not meet adversity. I will do what I want to do, and God nor you can do anything about it. The truth is, it's easy to begin to buy into this assumption. I mean, God doesn't really work like we're sitting at the beach, and that little airplane comes by pulling a pulling a banner behind there and says, Now, Stephen, be careful when you drive to work today because somebody's going to slam on the brakes and you're going to climb up all in yourself. Be careful right there. You know, he doesn't work that way. And so it's easy for us to begin to think he's not really involved. He doesn't really care about who I am at this time and how. And so let us make sure we understand what the Bible says this morning because that's the only thing that really matters. God is active. So turn with me to Romans 1. Matter of fact, this Psalms parallels the first three chapters of Romans very well. Romans 1 and verse 18. God is actively displayed in his creation. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what God had been known is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. All people stand without excuse. God is active and they can see it in creation, but that goes deeper than that. Flip over a chapter to Romans 2. See if you can see how God is actively displayed in this text. Romans 2 verse 15. They show that the works of the law, this is the unbelievers, is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. On that day when... According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. God is displayed in every single person's conscience. You say, well, what about that cannibal? You know, who goes over that other tribe and takes their children. Try to put their children in the pot. Say, oh no, not my child. They know what is right and they know what is wrong. And they sin against their own conscience. God is actively involved in the way he created us and the way he created this universe but the zenith the climax of God's active involvement in our life was proven when the God sent his son and he moved him in next door and he dwelt among us John 14 so many passages I mean which passage do you choose to show God was actively displayed in the person of Jesus Christ just listen to this one John 14 verse 9 says this Talking to Philip, have I been so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? God cares. 
Because God sent his own son into the world and proved he cares. But it even goes even closer to us today in John 16, a couple chapters over. God is actively displayed in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. Holy Spirit is just not working in your life. This is, this is our greatest hope for evangelism, by the way. So listen to it. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. You will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. There is a second false assumption. God doesn't care if I sin. This one sounds a little bit more practical to today. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Right? How many times have we said that? That is acting in a functional form of atheism. It is simply blame shift your responsibility for our sin and say, you know, not as bad as Jason or not as bad as those people over there doing that thing that seems worse than me than what I'm doing. This goes all the way back. This blame shifting our sin onto someone else goes all the way back to the garden. You remember? Who does God come to after they sin? Adam, why? Because Adam was the head on all of his home. He was also the head of all of humanity. So he comes to him and said, what did you do? He said, that woman you gave me. Eve? No, 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 no. The devil is just blame shifting. We also justify what we want to do. But you know, they deserved it. They asked for it. What does God expect me to do? Just put up with that? We justify what we want to do. Well, you know, I was running late. The government rips us off anyway. And then I just justify what I want to do. Hear God's word this morning. Psalms 51.3, written from David when he committed not only adultery but murder. His response in Psalm 51.3 is, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. You see, what matters is not what we blame shift and not what, what we justify. It only matters that God has spoken, and it is His judgment that ultimately matters. There is a third assumption. And I'm doing a, I want to do a little teaching moment here because this is important it is this idea that God is here if I need him God is there if I need him what's implied in there is when I don't need him God just leave me alone this isn't a belief system called moralistic therapeutic deism it is alive today it is a fake type of Christianity that we need to understand and so, only, it's not in your notes on your paper, but it's up on the screen. I want you to see six components of this fake Christianity. One is a belief that, in a God who remains distant from our lives. In other words, God is like a grandparent that will sort of leave you alone, but if you need 20 bucks, you know who to go to. Because mama ain't going to give it to you. 
but Grandma will. God's that way. You know, he's just far enough away that you can get to him if you need him. People are generally just supposed to be good to each other. That's all God expects is, is let's just be somewhat moral. It's, it's almost civil. Let's just, it's just be nice. That's, that's the doctrine they live by. Be nice. The universal purpose of life, according to this belief, is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. It, it teaches us this mantra. If I don't love myself, I can't love anybody else. When the Bible tells you, you already love yourself. You don't have to try to love yourself. Another one. And this is big. There's no absolute moral truths. Even if someone is wrong, and in their wrongness they are destroying themselves, it is not nice nor loving to tell them that it's wrong. So there's no absolute morals. Besides, God allows all good people to go to heaven. God is a lazy teacher that always grades on a curve. God places limited demands on His people. Just be nice. Try to leave this world a better place. And above all, love yourself. And you're fine. Barna Dunna worldview inventory in 2021 and said four out of ten adults believe this within and without the church barnock is the one who called this fake christianity he said it is a worldview that is defined and driven by current culture more than historic truths or coherent doctrine he goes on to say, Consequently, this approach to spirituality asks little of its followers while providing the comfort, convenience, and community they long for. It sends them straight to hell, happy, and singing Christian music. God calls these people fools. Fools. Because they live with God's revelation. As if God doesn't care. <laughs> the divine conclusion is, is a sobering one in verses 2 and 3. It is that God looks down on the children of man. And he doesn't find anyone who seeks, who understands. He doesn't find, listen, any good people. <laughs> so who are the children of man? Who are the children of man? Everybody. That's who the children of man is. Everybody. He looks down on humanity. God does. And he sees a world of foolish people. There are no innocent tribes in the far reaches of the Amazon jungle or in Africa or whatever continent we like to use for an illustration. There are only hell-bound haters of God who need the gospel. Spurgeon. Got to get me a Spurgeon quote in here this morning. The fallen race of man left to its own energy has not produced a single lover of God or doer of holiness, nor will it ever do so. The Bible says something even so, more sober in Psalms 51. It says, we are born fools. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I've got a problem with this from birth. He says, no one, when I look down on earth, understands me. Why? Why? Because 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, 
the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are spiritually blind. They are not only spiritually blind, they can't understand and they can't seek because they can't hear. Matthew 13, 5 says this, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. These fools oftentimes join the church. <laughs> Not my words. Remember the, the seven churches? The church in Laodicea? Remember what God said to them? He said, for you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He said, you're saying you're okay. But the great physician says, you're not okay. He says, the world doesn't have any good people in it. Because we don't get good people from measuring goodness by ourselves, or by others, or by the culture. We only have one standard. For what is good, and it is God's revelation of His Word. And what redemptive history and what your history has proven to me and to us and to the world is that I can't live up to God's standard. I need help. Psalms 119, 151, David says this, But you are near, O Lord, and all of your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. God's standard doesn't change because God doesn't change. So from a gospel perspective, this is the bad news of the good news. <laughs> this is the point in the presentation of the gospel when you present the gospel to someone that they walk away. Because you just pretty much insulted all of humanity right here, God did. And that's right. Because, listen, the sovereign promise is this. God cares. And, and I know, and I felt this this, this this week, that we struggle with this because we, by, we, by and large, not all of us, but some of us are not oppressed, actively oppressed by people in power. And so we don't feel this. <laughs> They're feeling something that we're not feeling. That if we had someone oppressing us and there was nothing we could do about it, we would feel Look at verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. He's teaching us that God cares about those who persecute us and those who oppress us sin. He cares about their silence too. Look at verses 3 and 4. They have become corrupt. That's passive, by the way. In other words, that corruption is total. It is mind, body, and soul. And it has taken over all of them. That's the, the New Testament says that we are in, they are enslaved by sin. And notice, as a result in verse 4, they eat up my people. David said, they're eating up my people. They eat up God's people. What does that mean, they eat them up? They consume their wealth. They consume their freedom. And if they can get by with it, they will consume their life. They rob us of our peace. They attack our families. And they prey on the weakest among us. And according to Proverbs 6, they'll join our church and do it from the inside out. 
That's why God says, I hate those who store discord amongst brothers. They put on the face of a sheep and come in into your life posing as your friends. And when they get a foothold, they will destroy you. And they imagine, this is what he's saying, they imagine that they can attack God's children and get by with it. David is sitting there going, man, they don't know God at all. These people are not only morally corrupt, corrupt, when something happens in their life, they don't call on the Lord. To call on the Lord in the Bible means to rely on Him for your life, for your well-being. He is, he is your rock, your fortress. Yeah, all those words we hear in the psalm coming in our mind. I was an employer for years. And I don't know how many times it happened. Hire somebody. They get about two or three paychecks under their belt. Next thing you know, they start coming in a few minutes late, then 10 minutes late, then 15 minutes late. And you say, buddy, you're going to have to get here on time. You can get here 10 minutes late. You can get here 10 minutes early. It won't take long till all of a sudden, no call, no show. Answer is, Stephen, what did you do when that happened? I fired them immediately with a no rehire policy that they will never work for us again. These people don't call on God. They don't think he needs him. And they think they can just go get by with it. They think they can show up on Monday after they sobered up and everything's just going to be okay. (laughs) God cares about their sin. He cares about their self-reliant silence. That in their times of suffering, they do not call on Him. He cares about that. God cares enough to judge sinners. And I know that may not comfort you. But sooner or later, you will suffer to the degree that He will. They are, it says they are in terror when there's nothing to be terrified about. In other words, they're paranoid. This, this oftentimes works itself out. In a couple ways. Fear, anxiety, they're paranoid for no reason. You ever notice that untrustworthy people have no trespassing all over their yard? (laughs) There's a reason for that. (laughs) They're not trustworthy themselves. They hang around people who aren't trustworthy, who will steal their stuff. They're, They're always afraid. They're always thinking somebody's out to get them. Listen. Sin has judgment built into it. That's what the shame and the fear is when we sin. (laughs) Our conscience and even their conscience is their best friend when they don't even know it. And when we live in an abiding lifestyle of sin, God will take away your peace and He will take away your joy because they are are gifts from God and you can't earn them and you can't just get them by some kind of positive self-help mentality. If God withhold them, they are withheld. Gets more sobering than this. It says God cares about your enemies, about those who persecute cares about the suffering of his people, and he shows it through his rejection and his judgment. Uh, look at the verse 5. It says, For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Sidebar for a minute. 
I know, brothers and sisters, that oftentimes if you're visiting with us today, you don't hear messages like this. It's because the pastor's preaching what he wants to preach. But we pre- when we open up the Bible, and this is next, it is a sin to ignore it. And so this is good news, brothers and sisters. So understand that with me today. If not, you can't understand it in yourself. Get your head up and look around because there's suffering oppressed people everywhere that this is the best news in all the world. God cares it's one of the sobering, you see, in the last analysis, it's not that people reject God, but that God may well reject them that should sober the souls of men. That's what he's saying here. And so, let's flip back to Romans 1. I want to show you this. This is clear Bible. I just want you to see it. You can be rejected and still be alive. God can reject individuals. God can reject a culture. God can reject a country. Romans 1.21 says this. And look at God's word. I'm not, I'm not explaining it. I'm just reading it. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore God, what? Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason what? God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. God can give you up. This is a sobering warning for God's suffering people that those who are persecuting them are in grave danger because God judges not only in the next life, He judges in this life as well. And that is good news for suffering people. This is part of His lament for God to do something in His life. He's saying, God, this is who you are and this is how you feel about sin and I'm trusting on you to make this right in my life because it's not right right now. David in this lament is comforting because God cares enough to deal with sin, but God also cares enough to save his people. That's good news. That's the gospel we've been waiting on, isn't it? The good news. He says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. In other words, what he is going through, he doesn't experience this salvation yet. He's still suffering. They're still persecuting. The enemy's still at the door. Verse 5 said, he's going to scatter their bones. In other words, let's turn this to a positive. God's presence in your life 
is a protective presence. God cares for you by what He gives and what He withholds. He cares for you by the people He sends into your life and by the people He removes from your life, whether you realize it's a gift or not. He is the perfect parent that will take it away from you when it is not good for you, whether you like it or not. And you will look back one day and say, Praise God, He took away that person out of my life. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. He not only promises us temporal preservation, but eternal salvation. So here's what he's saying. In this life, there is suffering and there is oppression, and that brings us to lamenting. What's coming is salvation and restoration that leads to rejoicing. And for believers, what are we looking for here? Uh, This is not... The new heaven and a new earth. This is not it. And there's plenty of gospels out there that says that Jesus gives it all to you now. That's not true. The Bible tells us in this world we will have what? Suffering. But as He has overcome the world, we're looking for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the new heaven and the new earth, this and this only will bring a total rejoicing because sin will be removed from this world and from me and from you. And together, he will consummate his kingdom. Not without us, but with us. This is Old and New Testament clear. Isaiah 65, verse 17 in the Old Testament says this, For behold, I create new heavens, and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isn't that good news? But but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. 2 Peter. Plenty of passages here. I like this one. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's dealing with people that's that you might hear that's sitting there going, yeah, yeah, you believe Jesus was coming back? Your parents believed they were coming back too, and their parents did, and they're all dead now, and you're still sitting here believing Jesus is going to come back one day. That's, that's what Peter says, what he says. Verse 8, 2 Peter 3. When they say this to you, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, with the Lord... One day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Now, let me, let, me, let me read this to you in the way it's meant to be interpreted. Remember who He's talking to. He's talking to believers. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but all of that you should come to repentance. His point is that God is a good father and he's not coming back to all of his children are in the house and they're not in the house yet. And so he's not coming back. When they're in the house, he's coming back. And you can count on it. And living proof is you're in the house. You're saved, aren't you? You're living proof of the patience of God. Aren't you glad he didn't come back 30 years ago? Verse 10. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people should we be in lives of holiness of godliness? Waiting for and hastening, speeding up the coming of the day of God. Because of which heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And heavenly bodies will melt and they burn But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which what dwells? Righteousness. So what? So what? What is my life declaring about God? Irregardless of our situation. Matter of fact, in the context of this, it is saying in the midst of suffering, what is my life declaring about God? In the midst of the unknown. In the midst of the things that we wish could change but we can't change. In the wish of the in people in our life that we wish could change and we can't change them. Uh, what, are we, how, what are we supposed to be doing? Matthew 5, 16, you know this verse well. It says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, holiness is not about not doing things. Holiness is about doing the best things for the best reasons. That's holiness. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations of that. If you grab hold of the glories of Christ, then porn will lose its attractiveness and you will see it as the corrupting cancer that it is. Grab hold of how your marriage, present or future, is meant to reflect Christ and His church and begin to seek to display that in your life. And whether you are married or whether you are single, you will see your life begin to grow and things begin to change. But let's come back to the context. You're suffering. You're being oppressed. And God expects you to shine your light. So let me give you a caveat, whether you're watching online or whether you're here. um, This is important. Because fixing to look at a passage and get into a little bit of the why of suffering. And and so let let me just say this. When you are in the midst of intense suffering, when you're in the furnace of it, and you are asking or somebody comes to you and asks the questions, why does God not make it stop? Why does he just take it away? Why, why is this happening to me? And you sit back and say, well, theologically, you know, all things work for the good. And God's got a purpose. He's got your holiness in mind. And, and, and we give him about six things. What that feels like to that person is you have just poured salt in their wound. Okay, so I say that as a caveat to myself before I, before I talk about the purpose of suffering. The time to study the purpose of suffering is before you get there and, or in retrospect after you've left it. Now pour in and understand suffering because when you're in the midst of suffering, you just need somebody to help you cling fast to the steadfast love of God and call it a day and trust His mercies are new every day. That's what you need to help people do when they're suffering. Give them the theology before. 
That's why discipleship is important in our life, by the way. It's too late once the heat comes to put it in there. All that to say, turn with me to Hebrews 13 so I can teach you what I learned this week. God orchestrated this. And just so you know, there's there's a couple of books. Um, If you're in a small group, you need to get this devotional here. In the Lord, I take refuge. Um, You can read it every day, but especially read our psalm. You'll understand what I've just been talking about. If you need help lamenting, we've got some of these in the library. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It'll help you learn how to lament. But the book that is working on me right now was written by a lady who can only move her head called Johnny Erickson Tata. It's called When God Weeps. Uh, oh, my cousin sent me this book. And uh, I'm only about, you can see my bookmark, I'm about halfway. Uh, but she, she taught me this this week, and I want to teach it to you. Hebrews 13 In the midst of intense suffering, my life should declare his sacrifice with great joy. So, look at verse 12, Hebrews 13. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates. Don't normally talk when I'm reading God's word, but let's ask the question, why? Okay? Why? Look what it says. To make his people holy by means of his own blood. So the conclusion then, that's what he's saying. The conclusion of the cross of Jesus Christ. Who was crucified outside the city gates as a means of public shame. The conclusion is this. Verse 13. Let us go out to him. The conclusion that Christ went out and and led to our salvation is, is this response, verse 13. So let us go out to him outside the gate and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. It's a couple of let us. If you underline your Bible, you write that, let us go. My life exists and your life exists to put the cross of Jesus Christ on display. And it's not doesn't matter what we go through. It's especially when we go through times of difficulty that we lift up the cross of Jesus Christ. Cross and all. God gets to pick. God gets to pick. I said that before and I'll say it again because it's simply what the Bible is teaching us. That my job is to display Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's His job to pick how I do it. Therefore, verse... 15. Here's another let us. You see it? Let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. This is, this is where she, what she taught me here. First, notice that the charge is to go outside the gate. That's dangerous. There's a particular kind of suffering that you're going to find outside the gate. It hurt. Her question here was dealing with why suffering? Why don't he just take it away? Why didn't he ever heal Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been in a wheelchair for what, 50 years? Because it takes suffering. Listen, it takes suffering to produce a sacrifice of praise. 
It takes suffering to produce a sacrifice of praise. That is, in times of suffering, our praise is a sacrifice to God. Here's the point. There's no praise as sweet to the ears of God. It's when in the midst of our intense suffering, we say to God, Though you slay me, yet will I trust you. That's sweet to God. That, that proclamation leaves the angels standing in awe and makes the demons tremble. And as long as you've got a mouth or a brain, you can do it. She can do it and she can move her head. You can do it today if you're stuck in your recliner and you can't get up. You can make more of a difference in the spiritual world than any of us going around acting like we got it all together can. People are listening when we worship. There's a spiritual world listening when you suffer. There's people with skin on watching you. And even if you were on an island all by yourself and there's nobody to see your suffering, we lift our hands to God and we worship Him so that we can make the poor salt in the crushed head of the devil and make the angel sing. You see, it is in the midst of your unique times of suffering that God allows you to do your greatest work. Our, your greatest work is done in the valleys. They are not done on the mountaintops. That's the truth of God's word. And listen, it is the truth of our life. Before he ends, he says, oh yeah. Verse 16, do you see it? Oh yeah. Don't forget to do good and to share it with those in need. Because these sacrifices are what please God. So in the midst of your suffering, remember the cross. In the midst of your suffering, let your suffering be the catalyst for your worship. And don't stop helping people just because you're hurting. Because God gets the glory. So what he's teaching us today is let us go out. Let us offer up. And let us move towards those who can never thank us. Because these things make God look good. And these things bring us joy. Let's pray. And so God, we thank you. Though your word is sometimes sober. It's always good. Thank you that all of your word, even the hard passages, teach us who you are and how much you care for your righteous children. Lord, we are righteous who have placed our faith in Christ, not because of some good we did. We are righteous because your Son has covered us with his righteousness. And so now, Lord, what we want to do as we think about us being covered, though we were fools, yet we have been redeemed, and now we are covered. Now we want, wish to stand up, and with all that we have, wherever we are and whatever we're doing, even if we are in a chair or in a bed and can't stand up we can raise our voices to you for you are our God and there is no other that deserves our allegiance Lord we do long for that day 
That day when you would come back and that day where you set up a new heaven and a new earth. That day where there will be no more sickness, sin, death, graves. But Lord, we are here. And as the psalmist can lament and say, God, I don't understand what is happening in our life. Thank you, Lord, that today I pray that your people understand that we can be so honest with you. It's to simply tell you how we feel. And you love us anyway. All of this was purchased by your son. And so, Lord, we long to come to the tables now. We long to come to the tables to remember that it was your son who showed us he cared by coming and putting on a f- nature like ours, flesh and blood, and lived and suffered and died. We come to the tables to remember that his body was broken in our place and his blood shed for us. And we come to the table to acknowledge we are all in one family. We've all come through your son to have peace. Lord, don't let anybody come to the table. It's not in you. This table is for the redeemed to rejoice that we are redeemed and that we are one family. Lord, I pray that you would bring salvation today for those that are here or those online through repentance and faith in your son. Lord, now we just long to enjoy you in Jesus' name. Amen.